You are listening to the No People Pleasing Zone. If you're ready to unlearn people pleasing patterns and tame your fears so you can stand in your power and claim the unapologetic life you're entitled to, you're in the right place. I'm Easy Martin Chan. Let's get started. Hey, wow, I haven't seen you for a while. You put on some weight. If you're somebody who already identifies as belonging to the grouping of obese, struggling with weight for decades, a comment like that can feel like an attack. It's a form of something we call microaggressions. In today's episode of the No People Pleasing Zone, we're going to dive into what microaggressions are, why they aren't just about anti-racist work, and explore why we should be paying attention to terms like microaggressions when we're stuck down what I call the people-pleasing rabbit hole. So stay tuned. You have now entered the No People-Pleasing Zone. Host Elizabeth Martin-Chan is here to pull you out of the people-pleasing rabbit hole into a world where you are priority number one. So, keep those earbuds in, close the door, and claim your personal time just for you. Hey, it's Elizabeth in the No People Pleasing Zone. So, before we get started today, I want to share a story with you. When I was growing up, I didn't always feel smart in school. In fact, by the time I was 11 or 12, I was pretty convinced that I was stupid. And I didn't really think I could do anything about that. I just plugged through, doing what was expected, going to class, doing the homework, writing the tests, and getting report cards that seemed year after year to reinforce that painful belief. And then in grade nine, something happened. I got a, I got a really high mark in my science course. It was something like a 95 or a 98. I can't remember exactly. But what I do remember is my teacher, Mr. Hoyler, he asked me to wait after class. And when everyone had left the classroom, he told me that I had gotten the highest mark in all of the grade nine science classes. And he was recommending me for the special advanced program that we had at our school. Probably for the first time in my academic life, I felt proud of myself. I had achieved something I hadn't even tried to achieve. I'd actually demonstrated that I could do something right in school. And someone had noticed. Someone was putting a belief in me. Growing up, I didn't live with my dad. My parents split when I was about six, and we didn't live near him. We had phone calls. They weren't weekly, but they were probably something like every 10 days or so. So on my next phone call with my dad, I excitedly shared my science mark. And I shared that it was the highest mark in science for all of my grade. And I can still hear his response. What happened to the other percentage marks? When I tell that story, I can still feel, although much more faintly than in the past, all my excitement solidify 
into a heavy inner stone that just dropped in my body. I can still feel my body slump. I can still feel a, possi- a belief in, in my possibilities dissipate. And I'm sharing this story with you today because I don't think that my father intended to hurt me. But I do think that what he delivered in those words that day was a kind of microaggression. Now, I don't know if you know what a microaggression is. So stick with me, because that's what we're exploring today. Maybe you heard the term microaggression, especially in the last couple of years. Its use has seen a resurgence as there's been an increased focus, especially in the United States, but also elsewhere on racism and on LGBTQ2 rights. Microaggression is a term that was coined in 1970 by Dr. Chester M. Pierce. He was a psychiatrist at Harvard University, and he used the term to describe intentional and unintentional insults inflicted on African-Americans by non-Black Americans. Today, we've grown to use the term microaggression in a broader understanding. It's generally defined as everyday, subtle, usually unintentional interactions or behaviors that communicate a bias towards historically marginalized groups. Now, microaggressions tend to be brief exchanges, but there's a kind of everydayness to it, and they send a denigrative message to individuals. They're based on biases around groups within our cultures. That's why the term comes up so often when we're discussing racism or sexism or LGBTQ2. Microaggressions can be so subtle. They can be so nuanced that neither the aggressor nor the individual on the receiving end is completely aware of what transpired. They make people feel uncomfortable, but they aren't always identifiable. One of my favorite scholars on somatics and social justice, Ray Johnson, they talk about microaggressions as being like paper cuts. Ray Johnson says, like a paper cut, microaggressions appear small and insignificant, but can be extraordinarily painful. Microaggressions, they say, are often hard for others to see. And the pain sometimes doesn't show up until after the initial incident and then lingers long afterwards. I think it's also important to note that other scholars will tell us that microaggressions are accumulative. When you experience a microaggression once, it probably is just an irritant. Experience them over and over, and it reinforces a message. So that's an introduction to what a microaggression is. But the thing is, we subcategorize membership groups in our cultures all the time. We collectively make value judgments about these subgroups. We have biases 
And it's not just about racism or grappling with LGBTQ2 or sexism. Collectively, we're apt to have negative biases towards economically disadvantaged individuals, those who are homeless, those who don't fit into what we perceive as physical norms, like mobility or weight or height or something else, or even how we perceive beauty. The experience of oppression is, I believe, far more complex than we sometimes acknowledge. So right now you might be saying, Elizabeth, that's interesting. But why are you talking about microaggressions in the no people pleasing zone? Well, my answer is that I want to give you a few more things to think about because I think microaggressions are hugely significant for humans who are stuck down what I call the people pleasing rabbit hole. I said earlier that there's an everydayness to microaggressions. And I also said that sometimes they're not always identifiable. That's because they happen so often on a body level. We can identify when someone says something that's based on negative biases, like complimenting a visible minority on their excellent English or using pronouns rooted in gender duality when we've specifically been asked to use them, they. Ooh, I think I should do an episode on pronouns down the road. Let me know what you think on that. I'm going to put a pin in that idea. But I want to get back to my point. Microaggressions that are verbal, I think people are getting better at identifying. But what's much more difficult to identify is what happens on the body level. Because we don't have a lot of practice in Western culture tuning into the body. We're pretty divorced from our bodies, from what goes on on the body level, on the somatic level. The more you listen to me, the more you realize this is a huge passion of mine. And I believe it's so key in learning how to climb out of the people-pleasing rabbit hole. So let's see if I can give some examples that make body-level microaggressions clear for you. A young Black man gets on a public bus. A woman draws her bag closer and clutches it. That's a microaggression on a body level because it sends out the message that she perceives the Black man as a danger. Two colleagues of equal standing walk down a narrow hallway. They're passing each other. One's male, the other female. Both are conditioned that the female gives way to the male. The the microaggression exists. It's ingrained in both their behaviors and it reinforces who has power and value in the culture. A seldom or infrequently seen relative leans in for a hug from a hesitant child. And the parent of that child insists that the hug happen. This too could be a microaggression because it tells the child that they don't have sovereignty over their body. What they feel doesn't matter. These are really nuanced body experiences 
And in a culture that tends towards intellect, verbal awareness, rather than body awareness, that's when we miss the critical point. By far, we believe information collected on the body level over the information collected on the verbal level. Studies show that that information collected on the body level is far more important to how our body learns or interprets the situation. If someone says they aren't angry with you, but they cross their arms, they invade your space, and they have a harsh tone to their voice, nothing they say will convince you that they aren't angry. And you can't intellectualize that away either. Your body knows. Microaggressions occur both on a verbal level and on a body level. Since microaggressions are accumulative, they help to reinforce biases, which is another way of saying they reinforce the status quo. Humans who are stuck down the people-pleasing rabbit hole have learned over time certain ways of interacting with others in their environment. And what I know, what I believe to my core, is that microaggressions are an essential component to falling down and remaining stuck in the people-pleasing rabbit hole. Microaggressions, subtle forms of oppression, are so much more complex than just racism or sexism or LGBTQ2 issues. They're important there, but they're important throughout our culture. The biases in Western cultures around who has power is so complex. And it, it's reinforced not just verbally, but so much more importantly, through body-level messaging. Humans that are stuck down what I call the people-pleasing rabbit hole are doing what we believe we need to do to be accepted. It's wired in our DNA. And we pay attention to the microaggressions they, because those are, what, are, those are our cues. They indicate to us both verbally and somatically, the body level, how to behave. But the cool thing is, once we realize this, once we realize how significant body level messages are, we can begin to become aware. We can build relationships with our bodies. We can learn to listen to our bodies. And we can actually engage our bodies in ways that counter the status quo, the status quo that the microaggressions establish and reinforce. You know, when my dad asked what had happened to the rest of the percentage points in my science mark, which was just another comment in an ongoing theme, I truly think he was just trying to encourage me to get me to try harder. But Dr. Pierce, the person who coined the term microaggressions, in the late 1970s, he used the word microaggression to refer to injurious behavior directed by adults towards children. My dad didn't understand the power he held over me, 
He didn't understand that the power dynamic of parent over child could injure through words and body language. He couldn't know that his and others were repetitively giving me microaggressions. And over the years, that would have an accumulative effect. Microaggressions do impact those on the receiving end. They teach a correct way of being. They establish and reinforce status quos. And for some of us, they help to push us down and keep us down the people-pleasing rabbit hole. When we recognize this, we can begin to see the structure of the people-pleasing rabbit hole. And then we can begin to figure out how to, in, how to tear down that internalized scaffolding that keeps us stuck. I hope you found some value today in this brief introduction to microaggressions. I'm sure they'll come up again. Let me know if you have any questions or thought about microaggressions. You can always drop me a direct message over on Instagram at elizabeth.martin.chan. And I'm not sure what we're going to talk about next week, but I've been thinking about mulling about the fact that the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday season is coming up. And I know how challenging holiday, holiday gatherings can be for humans who are stuck down what I call the people-pleasing rabbit hole. So I don't yet know what it's going to look like, but I'm chewing on that. And I think there'll be something helpful for you. Remember. You are worthy, you are enough, and you are everything the world needs right now. I'll see you next week in the No People Pleasing Zone. If living outside of the people-pleasing rabbit hole resonates with you, hop on over to reclaimingselfacceptance.com to receive your free copy of Adventures in Reclaiming Your Life, Five Secrets Every People-Pleasing Woman Should Know Now. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast app, and we love five-star reviews, too. Okay, beautiful rebel, that's it for this episode. I hope you found value in today's content, because you are deserving of more delicious unapologetic self-love in your life. If you want to come hang out with me on social, you can find me over on Instagram at easy.martinchan or on Facebook at elizabethmartin-chan. If you haven't done so already, go hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you leave us a five-star review, You'll help others discover our podcast. I'll see you next time.